Okay. Welcome to the Alameda Health System Finance Committee for November 2nd, 2022. Uh, can we please take roll, Madam Clerk? Yes, Trustee Blue is not here. I'll reach out to her. Uh, Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Friedman. Here. Trustee Splendorio. Here. We do have a quorum, thank you. Okay. Is there any comment, uh, public comment, Madam Clerk? Nobody's reached out to me. Okay. Uh, when we go to item A, an action item, approval of the minutes of our last meeting on October 6th, 2022. Alan, I'll move approval. Second. Okay. May we have a roll call, please? Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. And Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Okay, uh, the next item on the agenda is a, an information and discussion item, uh, the chair report. Uh, and there's an article in your agenda package, uh, title of the article, where are all our post COVID patients? Um, and the article references uh, uh, the surprisingly low number of underserved patients showing up for care in the, in the COVID follow-up clinic that had been established at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, they had, would have expected people of color and underserved people who uh, would be expected to have long COVID uh, to show up for treatment and they aren't being treated at the clinic. Uh, uh, we, I think here at AHS feel that we're doing pretty well uh, with, our, uh, with our COVID numbers, especially with a reduction of inpatients. But I'm wondering what our experience is with, with post-COVID patients and how we see post-COVID COVID patients and follow them up in an outpatient setting. And are we also missing some of these patients that might need help? And is there anyone that can comment on that for AHS? Hi, Trustee. I, this, hi, good evening. Um, well, I don't have the numbers on post-COVID patients. Um, what we can certainly do is, is look at that um, for you. They would, um, patients who, I, I would imagine that patients who had a prior diagnosis of COVID um, would be seen in our ambulatory setting. And so what we could do is take a look at, at our, you know, kind of primary diagnoses of patients seen in our, in our ambulatory clinics to try and get a sense of, of that volume. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Tornabene. Uh, hi, guys, this is Taft. It's my understanding that we don't have a dedicated uh, clinic to, to post-COVID care. So as That's Dr. Tornabene mentioned, yeah. it's integrated into the existing systems of primary mm -hmm. care, which, which offers us some challenges with regard to data management because some of our patients actually don't are not primarily based within Alameda Health System. For example, mm -hmm. might be partners of uh, the, the CHCN in, from La Clinica mm -hmm. or Asian. So uh, tough data to get, but I think it's a, it's a good question. Any, any thoughts about just in general, what's, what, 
we're seeing in the in the overall community, not necessarily at AHS? Do we have any way of kind of monitoring that or getting feedback on that? I think it's worth checking with the public health department and seeing what kind of data they have. Uh, they might have some trends or information that would help inform us. Can I ask another question just to add to that? Do we have specific diagnoses that are typically associated or do we have a diagnosis now that's considered the standard for post-COVID to make that data capture simple? I would imagine that, and I, I don't know that answer off the top of my head. Um, I would imagine there's a variety of diagnosis codes that might be related to COVID-19. Besides the acute infection, there might be other associated diagnoses. But again, I, this these are great questions. And what I can do, as Dr. Phuket indicated, that it, it might be, it might not be the clearest data, but it would be really interesting to see, you know, do a look back in our ambulatory clinics. What are we seeing in terms of the types of diagnoses related to COVID-19? Are there other associated disorders that we're seeing like with COVID-19 as perhaps a secondary diagnosis? And, and I think that we could definitely get some of that information and, and bring it back. Okay. Um... I wasn't anticipating creating a lot of extra work for people. Um, uh, so I guess I would ask, just go ahead and use your judgment on how much time to put into that. Okay. And uh, our next meeting isn't until January. Uh, do you think at that time you could just do a verbal report back? Uh, of course, yeah, no, no problem. That gives us, okay. um, certainly gives us time to, to see what data is available and perhaps how we can slice and dice it. Okay. Uh, are there any other thoughts or, or comments about the article? Oh, on, a, on a related point with regard to, um, you know, how we measure and manage the data, at the last quality committee meeting, we, we heard a great report from Dr. Evan Ruhosa, uh, who, who is one of our emergency doctors and actually uh, the director of acute care outcomes. And uh, he gave us some really interesting data and I'll, I'll just regurgitate it quickly. He's able to, he was able to, with an analysis from data from 2016 to 2021, able to differentiate by race, how the, the breakup of people who were admitted. So here's some quick facts. Uh, in that five-year period, 47.4% were female, 52% 0.6 were male. And these are admissions just for um, These are just general admissions. So not, not fractionated by diagnosis, but it sort of gives an underlying theme for the diversity of people we see. 34.4% of our uh, admitted patients were black, 13% Asian, 20.4% uh, Caucasian, and 24.8% Hispanic. So I think as our systems are now uh, more capable of, of, of differentiating this out. I think Dr. Tornabeni's team will do this the same for ambulatory. And that would probably be a great marker of, of, uh, of this underlying question. Okay. Thank you for that comment. Uh, any other comments on the article or on the subject? All right. Thank you for that discussion.
And we will now move on to item B2 on the agenda, which is the report of the Chief Financial Officer. Can you see the presentation? Yes. Yes. All right. So this is the volume highlights, correct? That's right. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so consistent with the last few months, we are seeing a longer length of stay. We were at 6.5, which is a little better than year to date at 6.6, .6, but it is still a whole 1.1 and 20% more days per discharge than last year. Uh, so our overall acute patient days were up 16.2%. And of course that drives up the costs, our expenses to care for patients in those beds. Um, other highlights here, our trauma cases were 41.7 and 91 cases over budget. So we had a very busy trauma month. That does tend to drive up our commercial payer mix and our net revenue, which did occur. Our surgery volume, um, although pretty flat to budget a little high year to date, the outpatient or elective surgeries are running quite a bit above budget. So things appear to be stabilizing post the pandemic. Although our ED cases remain below budget and below pre-COVID levels. In the skilled nursing area, um, the sewer pipe at South Shore is preventing admissions. Um, which is, uh, you know, added to the COVID challenges. However, things were a little better. The uh, length of stay dropped a bit and we had a few more discharges. So that's positive. And it looks like we, and I don't want to say this, we, you know, we we're looking like we might be out of outbreak uh, status, but uh, uh, knock on wood, I don't know what I need to do, but <laughs> um, we've really uh, been very challenged in the skilled nursing environment. Our clinic visits are below budget, mostly because of provider vacancies, but overall on adjusted day basis for the month, we're up 6.7%, so very busy, uh, and 3.7 year to date. All right, so this next slide is a graphic of the length of stay. So we had 2,541 days above the regulatory models or the expected days. So we have a lot of patients staying here longer than what you would uh, think they would need to be here. Uh, and if you drill into that, what you'll see is that we have a lot of patients that are here more than 20 days beyond the expected length of stay. Uh, in the month of September, things improved. We were um, five less cases of these long stay cases at Highland, but we went up four in San Leandro. And what that, what that did is it dropped the opportunity days at Highland from 842 to 698. So that's an improvement of 144 days. But at San Leandro, we picked up 123 days. This next slide doesn't really give us the root cause, but it is a good indicator. So of the folks that discharged, where did they discharge to? 
the number one place is home, which includes assisted living and board and care. Uh, and the second is skilled nursing. So there were a lot of people sitting in the house that we couldn't get to home or get to skilled nursing. So what does this mean on our financials? Well, it means we did not have a very good month. Our net income was a loss of 3.2 million, which actually drove our year to date to a loss position of 1.1 million. And of course, with EBITDA or earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization, our cash flow, if you will, um, we missed by 3.3 in the month, which took, uh, which meant we were 7.3 million off for the month and 14.2 million off for the year. So, um, I ask you a question, uh, Kim. Yes. Um, what would you, if you had to take a stab at what our average uh, variable cost per day is for a, a med surge patient, what would that be? So in the graph here, um, what we use is in here, it is, uh, it's a, a $1,500 a day. We know that's low. Okay. Um, uh, and that quantified to 3.8 million in September. So and that's, that's just the cost. Now, if we had a paying patient or an inpatient patient, the weighted average per diem would have been a revenue of 3,500 a day. So then the point is there that our incremental cost of 2,500 additional days in length of stay is $3.8 million. Yes. And that's a big number. Can I follow that with a question? Because of this $1,500 loss and this potential $3,500 in revenue, is that counted as a $5,000 total loss? Well, it's, um, it's an opportunity um, because we could have filled that bed, um, but we had a, a person in it that we, we may have gotten an admin day on it or no payment at all. And so uh, it depends upon the payer mix of the, of the patients, but uh, that's kind of why we use this lower average of 1500. Um, we've, uh, we've looked at this many different ways and, and you can get as high as you know, double that easily, depending upon the mix of patients. And then again, too, with the um, DRG reimbursement at 3,500, this is a blended, which includes Medi-Cal and admin days. So, um, that is also could be considered low. So it is, a, this is having a huge impact on our financial situation. All right, so can let's I see. Can I ask a question? Kim, sure. can I ask a question? And maybe this is for you and Mark. So if your message is that, you know, the number of days, stay, stay days is, you know, it costs us. Um, is that a, I mean, I, I don't know how to put it more than bluntly. Is that an issue that we just have sicker patients? Is it that we're not, our staff isn't as productive as they should be? What What do you, I mean, I'm putting it pretty bluntly, but I'm just curious as if, if you've given that some thought is what's the cause of that? Well, we know that we're having throughput issues because the skilled nursing beds aren't available. 
um, which goes back to the slide we just had that, you know, where are these people discharging to? They're going home or they're going to a skilled nursing. Well, if there's no bed available, we can't discharge them. Or if it's not a safe discharge to go home with home health or some other variable there, then they stay in the hospital. So the physicians are not able to write a discharge order sooner and get the patients out. So this is something that we're, you know, that we're working on. This is one, one of the best initiatives. We call it care optimization. And we built an improvement of 12.4 million. And as you can see, our length of stay is actually 20% higher than last year. So we're, it's sort of a double whammy. It's the built-in improvement to the budget and also the fact that we our length of stay is higher than it was last year, which was our baseline. Kim, if I might respond to a little to uh, Trustee Splendorio's question. Um, so if you look at predominantly most of our patients are discharged home and our discharge to home length of stay is, is competitive. It's the 30 to 40 patients we have per day in the hospital that required skilled nursing. Um, and we started July with a pandemic, um, with COVID outbreak and not being able to discharge our patients effectively, not only to our post-acute services, but other nursing homes. That's loosening up a little. Um, but it was really a condition of other nursing homes being on lockdown because of COVID and not being able to accept patients. Um, even when that's open, our patients that need to go to nursing homes are a little sicker. They're medical, and nursing homes really watch their acuity and their payer mix to the point where at times they won't take our patients. So subsequently, we're thinking through, you know, what, what will it take to discharge more to our nursing homes and take fewer patients from the outside into our nursing homes, number one. And number two, do we need to develop more nursing home capability within our own hospitals to take the medically complex patients that a lot of the nursing homes won't take? So it's a complicated, it's a complicated situation, uh, Trustee Splendorio, but we think we think we can improve on it. So do you think that, um, I mean, I, I, you, you said a lot there, both Kim and Mark, you said a lot there, and I'm not going to break, break it down, but I just, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I think I saw this, it's a similar situation, maybe a year plus ago, I saw something like this and, um, you know, at some point, it, it it can't be COVID. It must be, yep. you know, it, it must be something else. And I'm not saying, I mean, we're, we're the, in some respects, we're the healthcare last resort. And, and I think that a little bit is what you're saying in there. Yeah. Um, and, it, and we can't get away from that. I mean, it's not that we should, or we, we can't, but we shouldn't either. Um, but if maybe looking at creating opportunities for where we can, uh, you know, whether you're creating your own, care facilities that have a different budgeting process of a different income model, whatever revenue model, that maybe that's the way to take a look at this. And yeah. um, because I mean, I, I, you know, I understand we're being burdened and we should be burdened, but it doesn't yeah. mean we can't look at other, other, other yeah. ways to solve it. Yep. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. I, I guarantee it. Um, you know, when we, when a year and a half ago, when I walked in the door, we were 
at 20 to 30 long lengths of stay in our hospital. We expect us to get down to that range again, but we've got to crack the nut and go below that. That's going to be the challenge in, in the strategy around that. Well, at some point, I think it, that this needs to be um, processed as a as some sort of, you know, not a study, but it is an analysis. Because I'd like our partners at the county to see this, see, you know, because this, like I said, I've seen this before, and and um, and, and you know, it probably will continue for a while. And said, this is why you know we have a loss of one million for for the over the last couple, you know, since the beginning of the year, and and um, a much larger one this month. Yeah, and it it isn't all in a. It isn't all on length of stay. Um, as Kim goes on and you look at the expenses, there's much to, there's um, the, the labor expense with registry and overtime is really high right now as well. It really is a well, condition yeah, of those two things. Yeah, and I'm not ignoring that. I just know that that is a much tougher nut to crack. Far, I mean, we're locked in on certain expenses. Um, and uh, if the demand is there, we have to supply somehow and I know it's expensive. I, I just don't, you know, I just don't see how that's, we're, absent some larger macroeconomic change, I just see that that's still going to be a large expense for us. It, I mean, there just be. aren't enough, there just aren't enough people out there and they're going to be expensive. Yep. We're thinking outside the box on this. And, you know, Mark Brown will be giving his Highland update and he'll talk a little bit more about it. Okay, good discussion. So this is the slide on performance improvement. So that care optimization is the length of stay initiative where you know we're one full day ahead of where we were a year ago and we built in improvement. And then the other item, as Mark pointed out here, are the registry utilization rates. We built in an improvement of 11 million. This month, we have 157 more registry than budget at a cost of 4.5 million. So. Um, yeah, the staffing is a huge issue. Um, so here's the revenue slide. Um, we've got some, some pretty good news here. We are seeing um, higher charges, although some of those um, longer length of stays are not going to generate net revenue. But in the current month with the trauma and surgical cases, um, we actually saw a nice commercial payer mix. So we have a, we're at a 19.6 compared to an 18.2% net revenue percentage, which really helped our bottom line here by 8.7 million. And we're ahead year to date, 17.3. And we are hitting our performance improvement initiative um, for best in the revenue cycle. The next slide is the uh, supplemental programs. Um, the Medi-Cal waiver GPP, we were able to bring in uh, 2.9 million for FY22 calendar year, quarter three. I made a change in the slide. We had a typo, it said three in the deck. So I'll send you this deck, Rana, when, I, when we're done. Uh, there's two typos in it, actually. That was one of them. And then we moved the FY21 GME settlement back to, um, 22. I, I reported on that last month thinking we could leave it in this fiscal year. 
But when it came to doing the roll forward for the footnotes, it just looked really odd. And we talked to our auditors and decided we really need to roll that back to last year. So we have we have done that. And now you see uh, the removal in the current month and year to date, we're pretty close to budget. On the operating expense side, we're over 17.2% for the month and 12.1% for the year. You can see right there, it is being driven by the labor costs. Um, the labor costs, I'll go into more detail on the next slide. Um, um, the other two variances here are purchase services and materials and supplies. Everything else is really very close to budget. Um, for purchase services, if you look to the year to date, we're over 2.5 million. 2.4 of that is the Huron contingency fee. It takes two to three months to validate the savings because we don't pay the contingency fee unless we've actually um, uh, realize the savings, the benefit. So we've done that work now, and I'm going to move about 2.5 million into last fiscal year, putting us on budget for purchase services. We just couldn't get the audit entry book through the auditors in time for this close. So my apologies on that, but um, that variance will go away and we'll be pretty close on purchase services. And it's the net of a couple things. Uh, it's the COVID uh, related activity, which is mostly testing, transcription services offset by fewer consulting costs and software licenses. So they pretty much net out. For materials and supplies, that is just being driven on the fact that we have so many more patient days than we had planned to budget. So you're seeing, um, you know, non-surgical medical supplies, you know, it's PP&E, um, pharmaceuticals all over budget. So the labor costs, um, this is uh, uh, the really large uh, variance in the month. And uh, you can see it's both in the employed salary and wages and registry. Um, so registry, we did want to hire our own staff. It's been very challenging. And we also thought that when we did have to use registry, we would have a lower rate because things would settle down uh, in the country. and those have not happened. Uh, in regard to our own salaries, we are paying much more in overtime. Uh, we, it was 1.7 million than budget and 5 million year to date. We're also paying extra shift bonuses that were not budgeted. Uh, those were to encourage staff to take more shifts. That was uh, 0.7 in the month and 1.8 for the year. Good news there is we think at um, Highland, we can stop paying that extra unbudgeted amount this next month. So I'm hoping to see this go down. There's another group of items that is like retention, settlements, bonuses, like one-time spot bonuses, anything that we do um, either to keep somebody, something like that. Um, those are not budgeted. And we had quite a few of them that we've paid out this year. We also, I have to come clean, we have a budget miss. Um, during the spring, when we were in the middle of the budget, we did a uh, zero to a 5% increase for non-represented. Uh, it was to make up for the fact that we hadn't done raises for uh, at least a year, two years. 
And it was happening while we were doing the budget. And then we also built in another COLA in July. And somehow in all of this, we missed um, 0.6 and 1.6 million, which will end up being 6 million for the year. So our budget will ultimately be understated about one and a quarter percent for this miss. Uh, and then we built in the best savings um, as salary reductions for the length of stay uh, and also the registry and overtime. And we're not realizing that. So we've got that um, variance as well. We spent a lot of time this month focusing on the rate variances. Um, next month, what I'll do is I'll do the rate volume. About 30% of the overall cost is because of those additional days. And I'll show you that next month. This month, we were just really struggling to really get our hands around the rate variance. All right, other than that, the physician wages are uh, slightly favorable and that's because of, we had recruiting dollars that haven't been realized. Employee benefits, we had a, um, a SUI quarterly adjustment that came through. Uh, and in regards to retirement, we're over in the year to date because of we did pay out bonuses. We accrued that into last year, but we did not accrue the retirement contribution. And some of that is timing anyway. So here's the uh, slide where we really start to drill in on what's driving the FTE variance to budget. Um, so we've got the uh, stacked graph that shows our productive FTE, our non-productive, that's when people are taking time off, registry and overtime. And so our budget was 109 FTE of overtime, we're at 196. We budgeted 126 registry, we're at 286. Um, for the non-productive, we budgeted 726. Again, people you know, came to work, right? And then um, the productive down here, we had a budget of 3.7 and we have uh, 3.5. So I have a question, Kim, on this. Um, is it because of the reduction of the non-productive time that total FTEs goes up, even though I think uh, adjusted patient days went down in September? Now, adjusted patient days are up 16.2%. I'm sorry, days, just patient days are up 16.2%. Adjusted patient days are up 6.6%. Okay. So that drove us to, to need more FTE. So we had 154 more than budget FTE, right? 4848 compared to 4694. And then um, uh, what happened last month is the, the non-productive went way, way down. Okay. In, in September, it's actually um, pretty high, but not out of line. I mean, we're 810 here. Um, so we did have more folks maybe with school starting off. So I mixed up uh, August and September here. Uh, we had budgeted 726. Uh, so we had more people off. And then the productive was down compared to our budget because we used more registry and more overtime. So thank you. Uh, trustee Fox. And then I think what we'll do next time is we'll add adjusted patient days to this. We, uh, we started the stack graph, but we took off the adjusted patient day. So uh, that is in the letter, but uh, we'll add it to here and we'll do the rate volume 
variance for next time. So here's the balance sheet and um, our days in AR um, went down. So good news there. The only other thing I'll point out here is the fund balance at a negative 58.7. Um, it's reflecting our net loss of 1.1 year to date and some audit entries. That's why it doesn't tie out completely. Uh, we don't have a period 13 to lock out the audit entries. So they're moving as we book them. This is the uh, days in AR graph. You can see a nice trend there going down, both going down, good to see. Um, but what really drove the decrease in AR days is the collections, HB collections and PB collections were ahead of where they normally are or ahead of trend. And then if you look at our cash collections, we have an all time record. We collected 68.1 million here in Epic and posted in Epic two accounts, 68.1 million. That is bigger than we've ever done. So although it's 68.1 here, that included legacy payments, behavioral health, and over here at 71 included behavioral health payments. We've never collected this much in a month. So great revenue cycle performance. The next slide here is our um, net negative balance graph. So the line of credit with the county, here's the ceiling, the black line, here's where we've been running and here's our forecast through the end of the year. We'll add another six months to this in January. Uh, we're always doing kind of one year ahead. Um, we did make a few changes to this. It's improved 24.8 million from last month. Um, it does include the 45.9 of performance improvement. We did um, bring up our accounts payable and payroll draws because we are above budget. So we did increase those 21.7. We were able to offset part of that with the additional patient collections. And then we discovered um, when we did our final calculation on realignment that we get to keep the FY20 realignment 100% of it, $40.8 million. Normally, we do not. We've only gotten all of the, this since the beginning of time twice, and we only got like $8 million one other year and nothing in most years. So this was a, um, something unexpected. Um, we actually stand in the shoes of the county, and there's this complicated formula that takes into account what the funding has been for indigent programs, and that calculation um, determines how much we need to pay back. In this year, we do not have to pay back anything. And again, this is for FY20. So this was great news. And that's the main driver for the improvement. Uh, in the capital budget, I've still got that we're going to spend 31.8. We've only spent 4.4, which if you annualize that is only 17.6. So we're way under in our capital spend. And I know um, a lot of folks are working on bringing forward their their uh, capital items so that we can get them accomplished this year. The Kim, uh, so, Kim. Yep. Uh, you, you know, I got I got to weigh in. That's my hot button. Uh, can we get it? I mean, can can we? I know you'll include this next. Well, I guess we're not mean December, but in January, got you know. I really do hope that that number is half of what it should be. You know what we budgeted for. So maybe as a way to push those along. I mean, I just think we need to address 
obsolescence and in our equipment and capital equipment. So I'd love to hear more in January. Okay. And Kim, along that line, um, in your report for September, you're talking about making the $33.9 million payment on the capital cost recon that we can now make because of the amendment. And once we do that, are we able to start drawing this money back for improvements on county owned buildings? That is our plan. Um, uh, Mark Fratsky has been working with Kim Gassaway uh, with the county on how we can access those funds. It's not as simple as it may sound because, it, because um, if the county pays for it, it's on county books and the county would like it on their books, right? And the funds we've turned over to them, but then who actually writes the check and who approves it and all of that. So um, Kim, I don't know, Mark, if you wanna give an yeah, update. Kim, the Board of Supervisors needs to approve two things. One, the MOU in terms of how the money will be transitioned to us and two, they actually have to approve the slate of capital um, to the tune of, I, I think it was 30 million or something. So, um, you know, that I, I thought it might be done in November. I've requested an update from the um, county GSA um, late last week, and I, I should be hearing from them soon, but that's all that's outstanding yet. Um, there doesn't seem to be any glitches with it. Other than uh, other than just getting it, you know, together and move to the board of supervisors for approval. So, do we have some capital projects lined up that, when we get this procedure, yes, sealed, um, to Splen's point that we will then be able to go ahead and get yes. funding and and make these projects happen? Absolutely, a lot of them. Okay. And I and I had the opportunity to sh probably a couple months ago to share that slate of capital improvements with the board. If you'd like it, me to bring it forward after the county approves it, I certainly can do that. Yes, it's almost uh, 40 million that will, will be available. My hope is that we can you know, invest it in something that has a return because if it's, um, if it's capital, then we can put it on another cost report and get the money back and keep, keep this going. Um, so I don't, I, uh, anyway, so I don't know, Mark, if you have it's, any comments it's, on that. It's, it's for infrastructure. Okay. It's also and, for and, investments in the buildings. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's infrastructure in our buildings. It's and what some of our, our 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 FY23 capital budget tied up in that money that we'll be yeah. able to see that some of those projects completed. Yeah, no, we did not know that we would have access to the funds, so we didn't budget. No. For this, it's it's uh, yeah. so it's and and I'd rather um, Alan have the county paying for the infrastructure work that they're required to pay for because they own the property. So I've I've kept our capital budget separate and distinct okay. from theirs, so that so we don't get them mixed up. Okay, got it. All right, thank you. And then um, we also. I also believe that we will get the capital designation funds that all of this will transpire in October. So it'll be a, uh, a slight hit to our line of credit, but not, not significant. So we're kind of just exchanging checks, if you will. Okay. All right, that's my presentation. Any, any questions, I'll move to the entity.
actually, I have one question about the the last topic, the capital expenditure funds that the seven million dollars that we transfer to the county annually. Um, I know that there's been a process of trying to get access to those funds for many years, which is why now it's twenty eight million. What's the likelihood that we'll actually get access to that this fiscal cycle? We, um, from my perspective, um, Trustee Esteen, we'll get access to it. We just need to identify, that's what the MOU going to the Board of Supervisors is about, is what is that process to access? Once that's approved, um, then we can move forward. And you think the timeline is... is uh... um, you know, I wish it was yesterday. My hunch is I haven't heard from them. I, I'm thinking, you know, it might be January. Um, with the holidays and et cetera, and when they meet. But, you know, I, I continue to inquire. I appreciate your optimism and your persistence. Okay. And Kim, since we have a very packed agenda, uh, hopefully we can uh, get through the um, entity-based financials in about five minutes. Yes. Um, I'm just going to make a few very brief comments. This is a work in process. It's, you know, we're it's not really ready for prime time because we still are are validating it. Um, so uh, here's the September, you can all see it, correct? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so this, this goes to contribution margins. So the idea here is making sure folks are, are achieving their budgets, right? So you can see that um, uh, the FQ clinics are actually doing better and it's both in revenue and expense. So that, that was good to see. Um, the rest of this is uh, more allocations. I don't know that it's really all that relevant for what we're talking about here. And we do need to finish um, some work on the allocations. On the year-to-date basis, um, we've got uh, two entities doing better than budget. We've got the FQ clinics and we've also got San Leandro. So that's good news. And then where are we on all this? Um, Mark Fratsky is leading the monthly operating reviews uh, and folks are really digging in to make sure that we've got everything set up correctly. We're working on bridge plans to close the gap and we will come back uh, to finance committee with those. Uh, we still need to get our key statistics in here by entity. We need to allocate the performance improvement initiatives um, and we need to complete the revenue allocations. And again, we want to make sure we got costs in the right place. And then once we've got this all together, we can then build the service line um, financial statements, which is our ultimate goal. And that's it, unless there's questions on this. Ms. Miranda, this is a Taft Bouquet. Um, quick question. Can you remind me what our uh, FQ uh, current rate is? and my recollection was there was a discussion about advancing that rate uh, with with the bodies and going towards uh, uh, the number four eleven or something stuck in my head. Can you can you give us an update on that? Sure. So um, for Highland, beginning in, in March twenty two, we were able to bring back all of our sites to FQ status and get, start getting paid two hundred and twelve dollars a visit. Twelve. The state um, agreed to let us do that. Uh, which was great news for us. And then now we're in the process of determining what the actual rate should be. The 212 was the original rate. We filed um, for a new, a new rate 
back in 2012. And now we are going back and forth on what that rate should be. And if my calculation is it should be about 411, you're very close, right around 400. Um, but the, the state is not there with me. We're still going back and forth. In fact, um, just today, uh, I uh, reviewed a, a rebuttal to one of the state's uh, um, uh, comments. They haven't given us anything in writing. They just talk to us, right? And we have the attorneys on the line. So we did a rebuttal and we're, we're formally submitting it to them probably by before Friday. So uh, we're giving them all the backup for why we think our number is good. And, do, and so, uh, you know, again, I can't applaud your team and the system for much so much for going to FQ. Is it your projection that this would actually go for monies, which would sort of go back in time as well to bring us up to speed? So my hope is yes, that it would go back in time. Mm -hmm. The issue that we're gonna have, and you typically what happens in these situations is they want you to rebuild the claims. We have no ability to rebuild. We have archives, everything. Um, and we receive supplemental funding um, that needs to be um, offset, which you cannot, we can't do now this many years later. So we've come up with a with a methodology, which I think is solid to do to figure out what this amount should be. And it, and it is a big number. But I know that um, I don't think the state is going to just take my number and say, right, yes, let's write you a check. I think they're going to say, wait a minute, you know, if you can't do all this rebuilding and you can't do this, then we'll have to settle somewhere. And that's what will take place. Do you have a projection? Let, 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 so let's pretend that we, we were not able to get anything um, from behind. So if we were to go to that, you know, we're at 212 or trying to go to greater than 400, that's a doubling, which would be, I'm sure you would be ecstatic about. How long would you project this process would take to resolve or quote, impossible to say? <laughs> well, I think that that um, when we we finish this this year, they're gonna they're gonna have to make some adjustments. So I think for next fiscal year we'll see something. Um, the settlement I think could take years. Uh, um, we'll see how they react to what we provide them this week. Uh, I mean we did a lot of work on this and it's, of course uh, you did. I think it's really solid. So um, that will how they react to that will tell me a lot. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay, any further questions for our CFO? Thank you, Kim. We'll move on to item B3, uh, the report of the Chief Operating Officer. And we have Mark Fratsky and Mark Brown reporting to us. Yes, thank you, Trustee Fox. And I'll introduce Mark Brown, the Chief Administrative Officer at Highland Hospital, who present the report tonight. And you know, Mark's report is kind of going to follow some of the main categories and topics that we discuss every single month now at our monthly operating reports. So with that, Mark uh, Brown, I will turn it over to you and you are on mute, Mark. Sir, and thank you, trustees. Um, as Kim and Mark alluded to, um, we are now doing monthly operating reviews. Um, we hit four topics in those monthly operating reviews. They were included in the presentation I sent out in the packet. packet. The first one is employee health, employee injuries, financials, quality, and then um, any kind of projects that are out here at the facility. Um, in the interest of time, 
Um, I will truncate my presentation and try and keep this to 20 minutes with about five minutes uh, for questions after that. So I will um, go um, verbally just discuss um, some of the slides that were in the presentation I did and then uh, more hit the financial ones um, through this. So looking at what we did for employee injuries, um, we're looking back um, over the fiscal year to look at the number of injuries we have, um, what they are, uh, strains, sprains, exposures, trying to identify and work with employee health and the leaders around the departments that are the highest risk and are showing the highest numbers, um, and then develop action plans off of that. Um, we were given data of about two years worth of data. Um, we've seen some um, higher numbers in some of the departments. I've asked for that data to get um, shortened down to about a year so we can have some more germane data that we were working with instead of some of the things that happened back in uh, 2020, um, things that have happened in 2022. So we can see that we've got any kind of recent upticks that we need to address when it comes to it. Um, but it's been enlightening to some of the leaders as we go through that process and look at it. So moving on to the next part, which is the financials, which Kim talked about already. Um, so this is Highland. Um, as she spoke about, our revenue um, is really good. Uh, 45.4 million on a budget of 42.6. Our collection is above budget. Um, we're collecting 18.9 cents on the dollar on a budget of 16.9. So doing really well when it comes to the revenue. Our opportunity obviously lies in operating expenses. You can see salaries and benefits um, is our biggest lane of opportunity. Um, operating expenses of 44.6 on a budget of 38.9 with an overage of about 5.6. Um, we talk about this and drill down to the unit level in these monthly operating reviews so that the leaders are digging into it with members from Kim's team. So they have a true understanding of where their opportunities are at um, around that. Looking into it as we go through it again, uh, just a repetition of what it is, system overhead allocation, net loss after allocations, and then our EBITDA um, matching about the same, about 5.1 um, off budget. So a month to date uh, loss of about 5.2 behind budget where we're at. And then you can see the year to date variance as well too, um, down about $10.7 million. All those opportunities throughout the month um, have been the same when it comes to September and October. Just see our OR cases are up. Outpatient is up over inpatient. That's where the variance is, about 2.7%. ED is off about 400 visits. Um, and that's running around where we're at, going for year-to-date, about 13% off year-to-date for the ED visits. The problem is we have our acute days, our acute discharges, our average daily census, and our length of stay um, are all off budget when it comes to that. And that's related to... Um, the difficulty we have in, in moving some of our patients. And I'll show you some of the length of stay numbers and what we're doing around some of that and some of the impact that's having. One of the encouraging tones that we do have though is that our staff is actually flexing off appropriately to the budget based off what our volume is. So we're actually running our hours per patient day is under budget 14.5 to an 18.8. Paid FTEs are under budget 1627 off 1667. Paid FTEs per average daily census, 10.3 on a 10.6. And then total productive um, FTEs is actually under budget by about 5.6%. What that reflects is that our leaders are doing a good job flexing and moving staff according to the census. Um, unfortunately, our census is, is often above budget. And you can see that down in our non-productive FTEs where they didn't take 
um, any um, sick time or not sick time, any kind of PTO and some sick time. Our training hours are up in certain areas because we do have some onboarding and you can see that's reflected in the number of hours. We do have some opportunities and missed meals and missed breaks to the tune of about $10,000 this month. And that's running out about the same where we're at um, off about $100,000 for the year around missed meals and missed breaks. Um, that's reflective of, of a lot of um, our opportunities around staffing um, and border patients as well too down in the emergency department. Then over time, uh, we have a half a million dollar opportunity in overtime in the month. And you can see the average rate for what we pay in overtime is $117 an hour compared to what the average registry rate, which is $277 an hour. So more than $100 um, below what we pay for registry is what we pay in our overtime for our own employees. And you can see the percent of um, productive hours. Um, target for most organizations is between 2 and 2, 2 and 2.5% um, for an overtime budget. Uh, we're running about a 4%. And then our registry, we have an opportunity of around $3 million for registry. And then you can see that our percent of productive hours is almost, uh, well, it's more than double. It's 71% higher than what we budgeted for what that is. One really good aspect that we have seen though in this month, we're noticing that trend um, in the month before is that our sitter hours and our sitter dollars, which were running considerably higher and a little out of control um, under Dusty and the great job that the nursing leadership team is doing. Uh, we have an opportunity, as you can see, um, to really show a good positive flow in that where we're under budget by about 38% the number of FTEs and under budget in um, what we're paying out for sitters about 32%. So doing a really good job with, with seeing if we actually truly need to use those sitters. Because you can see year to date that we're off significantly. So we're doing some really hard work around that usage with it. Again, same thing, not to beat um, the dead horse, but salaries and wages are our greatest opportunity. About $3.3 million on our labor cost. Um, all things considered, uh, labor and non-labor, about a $5.1 million miss. Some opportunities in supplies uh, around what we're costing per patient day and a cost per case. Um, anecdotally, uh, we had uh, our highest um, incidences of GSWs in September, um, as James noted in his uh, presentation he did on KTVU Channel 2. Um, and those do cost us more. Those patients do make trips to the OR. They do make trips to interventional radiology. It is a more costly trauma for us um, as opposed to um, motorcycle um, collisions and, and motor vehicle collisions as well and falls. GSW, I assume that's a, a gunshot, gun, gunshot wound. Yes, sir. Sorry, Alan. Okay. My apologies. Um, so if you look into the different areas where there's opportunities, um, our top five departments when it comes to overtime, emergency department, step down, ICU, and seventh and eighth floor. Um, those two area, or those five areas alone represent um, about half of the overtime. Um, that's also reflective in the fact that those have um, anywhere from 12 to 18 open FTE positions in each one of those departments as well too. Some of the reason why they show up on both the overtime and the registry list. Uh, there are some projects in place around the emergency department and ICU to open up uh, training positions. The emergency department's got eight positions that they're opening up um, that will hopefully be able to cut those positions in half. And the ICU is working towards that same as well around those same numbers of eight. Um, so we're hoping by February, 
to have eight positions filled internally, mobile coming up from med surgeon telefloors to fill those open positions, um, giving them an opportunity for career expansion um, and just career movement when it comes to that. Then moving over to registry, um, that is quite a shocking number with the emergency department around $700,000 over in registry. The ICU, almost a half a million dollars at 459,000. Labor and delivery at 357. Surgery at 290 and then the NICU at 190. So those top five alone uh, represent um, more than half of the opportunity that's there. We do have a commitment from the emergency department, the ICU and um, maternal child services. The emergency department and ICU will cut their, have um, promised to, to cut their registry use in half by the end of the year. Mother and children, mother child services with a NICU um, has a commitment to totally eliminate um, registry in the NICU and then work on the labor and delivery. So that was one of the great opportunities with those monthly operating reviews is the leaders got an opportunity to dig into this and realize where um, their opportunities exist with the financial team and then give that commitment as we walk through that process. So um, eye-opening and, and very good for those leaders to be able to see those opportunities. Moving on to what Kim was talking about, the length of stay. Um, during the best uh, initiative and the care optimization, one of the things that we've done around patient movement is we've worked on interdisciplinary rounds. And what that is, is at nine o'clock in the morning, the physicians, nurses, care managers, social workers, and PTOT get together from nine o'clock to 10 o'clock and discuss the patients that are on the floor. Talk about why they're there, opportunities for transitioning over to post-acute or to home, any kind of barriers that are out there. The graph on the right, the length of stay um, from zero to 20 days are the patients that are most effective by interdisciplinary rounds or the IDRs. The graph on the left is a length of stay for all patients. And you can see the patients that are discussed in IDRs and most impacted by those rounds. The length of stay is dropping, well, it's not dropping, but it's lower than what it is overall for the average length of stay for our other patients. So patients that are discussed in IDRs uh, last month had a length of stay of 6.2 days and patients that are not really affected by those are 8.9. And what that shows is that our patients that went home, 38 out of 39 of those on the sixth floor, the step down uh, floor alone, we hit our length of stay. We did a great job with getting those patients out of here. We had two patients that went to rehab, one stayed for 12 days over, one stayed for 11 days over. So we have some opportunities around entities that help us out with discharges. Uh, patients that transfer to another hospital, those are either our own internal transfers or moving out to UCSF or Sutter Hospital. Um, they stay for about a day over. Patients going to home health and, and skilled nursing facilities um, stayed for about 3.7 or 4.3 days over. All of these wrap up into that shorter length of stay for 6.2. There's only a representation of about 20 patients on the sixth floor that moved out it actually moved our length of stay up to 8.9. So the majority of our patients are actually getting out close to or only a little bit over our actual length of stay. It's these outliers of 10% of our patients that are staying that are driving up our length of stay numbers. It's, and we'll, I'll discuss the difficulties of that at the end, but you can see what it is around the skilled nursing facilities and home health 
when we rely on everyone else to try and get them somewhere besides home, that's where we run into the, the uniqueness and the challenges with our Medi-Cal, our patients, um, and some of the medications that we put our patients on. So Mark, it looks like we have some challenges with home health, even though these patients are going home rather than the skilled nursing. It seems like, there, is there a shortage of home health? or so that part, Yeah, part, part of the problem, Alan, is patients. the payer mix. It's, it's difficult to get some of the home health um, to cover some of the straight Medi-Cal patients that we have. Um, those are some of our sicker patients. They're some of our more vulnerable patient population that have a lot of comorbidities associated with their um, admission. And when they're discharges, it, it's difficult to get those home health nurses to get out there and do as many hours as they need. So we have to work with multiple agencies in order to get the proper care out there. And then the reimbursement based off of those straight Medi-Cal or HPAC patients at times as they are too. Um, it's just difficult to get um, the proper partnership with some of our home health agencies. Is it is managed care, managed care, managed Medi-Cal patients a little better? The Alliance is, is a great partner to work with, Alan. Um, they either do um, letters of agreements um, with other agencies. They really work with us to get their patients out of the acute care setting and into the most appropriate setting for them uh, to care for. So the, the Alliance, um, not that any insurance agency is a true joy to work with, um, but they, they really work well with us. Um, when it comes to, to trying to move our, thanks for the laugh, Dr. Kent. Um, so they actually uh, work with us to try and get those patients out of there into the appropriate level of care, more so than our other um, partners in the insurance world do. Okay. Um, you can see Seventh Floor is doing um, a very, very good job with length of stay. Um, they've dropped down to 5.5 overall. There are patients that are affected the most by the interdisciplinary rounds are actually down to four for our length of stay. Um, and the reason being is that, ironically, patients that are on the telefloor aren't as sick as the med-surge patients. Um, they're here for a very prescribed um, disease process. They can fix that disease process, and they send them home. This is also where our oncology patients live. They come for a prescribed three, four, five days of therapy and then go home as well, too. So not nearly as sick as some of our med-surge patients at. And you can see, again, the majority of these patients went home. 93 out of 95 patients went home and they went home at what they were supposed to. And our one rehab patient actually left half a day sooner. It's our patients. And even then, then this shows the reflection that these are not as sick, right? It didn't take us as long to get these patients out to another hospital, out to home health, or out to a skilled nursing facility when it came to it. So again, not as many needs as when we look at the eighth and ninth floor, which is our med surge patients where a lot of our trauma patients end up uh, multiple uh, gunshot wounds, multiple polytrauma accidents. So you look at the length of stay for the eighth floor, which is the med surge floor, overall at 7.3. The patients that are directly affected by the new IDRs, 5.6. Again, though, 74 out of our 77 patients that were discharged home, only about a day over. Inpatient rehab, 4.3. Transfers to another hospital, one. Home health, 1.6. SNF, 3.1. Then we had those little outliers that drove it up from 5.6 to 7.3. So these are where our biggest areas of opportunity at for our discharge patients is patients that are going to home health and patients that are going to a skilled nursing facility. Small subset of patients are going to rehab and we have some opportunities around that, but uh, we do a, a, a decent job with our own. And you can see ninth floor, they've been on our um, new IDRs the longest out of all the facilities. They've been on since July, and you can see the steady downward trend 
in uh, the overall length of stay, um, it was moving down in the IDR rounds. This one blip represented, um, it was a, a transfer to other hospital patient um, when we had that. But you can see there's still a pretty good impact between what we can do with IDRs and patients that IDRs don't really have. And it shows the complexity of patients that we have that we're trying to get out. Again, 79 of the 79 patients that went home, a little bit less than a day over. Inpatient rehab, this is where a lot of our trauma patients end up. This is why this number is higher. Those are about three days over. Transferring to another hospital, this is actually where you saw the, the pickup over at San Leandro. These are long length of stay patients that we transferred from Highland over to San Leandro. So that's why their length of stay went up a little bit because they inherited some difficult placements from Highland um, that allowed to us to be able to free up some beds over here to take more trauma patients. Home with home health, again, 3.6 days over reflecting the complexity of those patients. SNFs, the ones that we got out on uh, close to on time, 20 of them we got out with one day over, three other ones drove that length of stay up um, a little bit higher when it comes to what we have. So overall, um, 284 out of 290 patients we sent home in the month of September. We're only a half a day over what we expected. Six patients drove that length of stay higher. Same thing with the inpatient rehab, transfers to another hospital. They're you know, half a day to two and a half days over. 95% of the time, we're getting them out with only about a day over. So if we're supposed to be out in four days, we're getting them out in about 5.2 days. It's 23 patients that are driving us up to six days or more. So it's not a lot of patients that are keeping that up, but they're staying a significant amount of time in the hospital. They're staying for 130, 140, 120 days. And they're difficult for us to discharge because they are polytraumas, because they're being kept on very expensive IV antibiotics. Um, we have very few post-acute partners that are willing to take uh, those type of patients because um, as Dr. Bouquet can attest to, meropenem is a very expensive IV antibiotic. We love to send patients home on that because our patients have multi-drug resistant organisms that force them to be on those. And those drugs cost the skilled nursing facilities about $1,000 a day. They only get reimbursed $150 a day for a Medi-Cal patient and about $800 a day for a Medicare patient. So they're not willing to take a lot of our patients that are being placed on some of these medications. Yeah. Can I ask a question? I'm noticing, oh, perfect. Oh, I'm sorry. Those are my question screen. So perfect there, uh, Trustee Eustine. <laughs> um, I'm noticing in the presentation that there's a, a, I mean, these particular units that you highlighted seem to also have the highest correlation of injuries amongst our staff, along with overtime and registry usage. And I'm so curious if we have these highly complex patients with extremely long lengths of stay, wouldn't it make sense to have the most continuity of care and be fully staffed with regular uh, staff instead of bringing in, you know, and also that helps to avoid injuries and things of that nature, instead of bringing in registry and relying on overtime, which then in turn leads to injury and sometimes worse outcomes? Yeah, 100% trustee, Eustine. And, and there's some plans in place with Roe and the and the HR team around um, how we're going to, for lack of a better word, go after the nurses and, and get more nurses in-house so that we registry doesn't care about our patient population. They're here because they're getting paid for it, right? And they're getting paid a, a lot, uh, at least the registry agencies are. We want our own nurses that care about the community, 
that care about our patient population and own it and own and are proud to be part of Highland. So there, there is there is a concerted effort out there, Trustee Steen, to, to make sure that we're able to recruit and able to promote within, right? We don't want to go out and get nurses that don't know the Highland culture or Highland patients. We want to promote eighth and ninth and seventh floor nurses up to the ICU and to the ED, grow them, know that they can have a path for growth within the organization, and then bring in those other nurses working either with schools or whatever plan we can do when it comes to the recruitment to try and bring them in so that we can own that and not have to pay $277 an hour on average for a registry nurse. Yep. So the nursing is working on that. Um, Trustee Steen, they've, they've got some good plans in place that they're trying to, to hammer out how that's supposed to work with it. Um, but we do have some significant opportunities around FTEO openings on those floors. And you're right, the eighth floor actually had the highest number of injuries um, for patients when it comes to it. And they also have the highest number of sitters when it comes to it. So a very complex and acute patient population that again, points to the difficulties we have with trying to get them out of um, the hospital and into the post-acute setting. Um, quality real quick. Um, I think I got about two or three minutes. Quality real quick. We did not have a single um, catheter associated urinary tract infection central line associated bloodstream infection, surgical site infection, or MRSA infection that was hospital acquired in the month of September. We were 100% a goose egg for having a hospital acquired infections at Highland, which was absolutely amazing. So a big shout out to the nursing team, a big shout out. We also have some more plans in place around how we can, can continue that, but absolutely amazing when it comes to that. We have some workaround opportunities around um, falls and some other things. We're working on those plans, um, but just a, a huge, incredible job around patient harm that we did not do a single infection associated harm to any of our patients. Um, well, shout and then, out to the CAO as well. Thank you. Yeah, well, sometimes he just walks around and smiles, but other than that. <laughs> so then a couple more things, Alan, to wrap up. So we have a couple projects we finished up. So the Higher Grounds Coffee Shop is now officially opened in our partnership with Red Bay Coffee, um, which we are so incredibly proud of um, for a local minority-owned coffee shop. Um, they do an amazing job. We've had nothing but um, good report from the coffee shop opening on Monday. Um, Physician Lounge hopefully will be open uh, middle of December. We've had some um, opportunities around supply chain and manufacturing of the furniture that Dr. Bouquet wanted. Um, so it's taking us a while when it comes to that. Um, and then a little bit of a hiccup when it comes to our MRI, it was supposed to be ready a couple of months ago. Um, it is about $50,000 over budget as a project. Um, it was ready to be turned on with the magnet. We then found out that we had to get special lights because the magnet would not turn on with the lights that were currently in the MRI suite. The lights that um, the GE one is are not allowed in California anymore. So we have to put in a change order to change out those lights. So we're gonna be delayed by another one to two weeks as we get that change order for the lights. So our second MRI will probably be delayed until the end of, uh, end of November or December um, when it comes to construction projects. And I think with that, trustees, I am done with a minute and 15 seconds to spare. Okay, one quick question. Yes, sir. For you and also for our CFO, do we receive outlier reimbursement from Medicare and Medi-Cal for some of these long stay patients? And do we calculate, is there such a calculation as inlier length of stay? 
I would have to defer to Mark or Kim around the reimbursements. Kim, I don't, I don't think we do, do we? We, we for Medicare, which is less than 20% of our payer mix, we can get outlier payments. Um, we don't do the inlier opportunity index uh, at Alameda Health System. Uh, I think, Mark, you're just looking at length of stay. You're not looking at opportunity days, right? You're, you're correct, Kim. Just, just length of stay. We, I do have other slides, but I'm short on time, Alan. Right. So, <laughs> Thank you. Excellent report, Mark. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to hear about the goose egg that you guys put up. Let's keep yeah, it's, that going. It's absolutely amazing, Alan. Zero patient harm in that arena. An amazing job for our nursing crew. Okay. So we'll hope that we can keep that one going. Okay, uh, on to item D, or actually item C1, which is uh, information discussion on Medi-Cal managed care and Alameda Health System as a safety net provider. And Tangerine Brigham is going to take the baton on that one. Yeah, let me share my screen. You can all see, yes? Wonderful. Yes. Um, so uh, this presentation before I start will be um, less about um, numbers, shall I say, and more about making sure that um, we're able to provide um, the trustees with a good sense of the changing nature of Medi-Cal and the implications for us in terms of how we approach our delivery system. And please feel free at any point to stop me if you've got questions. Now, recognizing it's not numbers heavy, I did wanna start the first slide with some context, additional context. So this pie chart is a pie chart of the California Health and Human Services Agency, their overall budget. You know, this is an agency with 12 different departments. Um, you can see them listed, but the real significant thing to point out is that of the 12 departments within this large agency, and it's one of the largest within the state, 61% of its budget is tied to not a department, but one program within a department and that is Medi-Cal. And whenever you have one program, which is such a significant component of an agency's overall budget, you can imagine it is ripe for constant review to determine are there ways to uh, ensure that it is efficiently run. And uh, what we have in Medi-Cal are efforts to really sort of do that really by focusing on sort of improved access for the Medi-Cal population. The distribution that I just showed um, for uh, the state, now I'm looking at our payer mix and this is based on the audited financials. Um, and you can see that Medi-Cal is also a significant component of our payer mix um, at 60%, and you see the distribution there. So 
What do we know about sort of Medi-Cal managed care, the, the models that we're talking about? I won't go through all of these uh, slides, but just to say that, you know, Medi-Cal covers um, as of May of this year, and this is the most recent information that this, the state um, has based on the August report, you know, almost a third of Californians were receiving this public health insurance product. That's a significant component of the uh, state's population. And as we know, it's federally and state funded. There are two models, fee-for-service and managed care. So oh, since the state started with Medi-Cal managed care, you know, back almost 30 years ago, it was actually in 1993, when the state released a strategic plan for the implementation of Medi-Cal managed care, initially in about you know, 12 or 13 counties. It has since expanded to all 58 counties. There are various models. We happen to be in, you know, the two plan model, which I think um, everyone is aware come January 2024, we'll go to a single plan model. What's really important to recognize is that as the state has moved towards Medi-Cal managed care, the expectations of what it wants its members or patients to receive has changed. There's an expectation that the health plans ensure that every member has a medical home. We have four medical homes within the Alameda Health System. There are standards around access to care, timely access to care. There are expectations around quality member services. And we really want to ensure that if someone is assigned to us, that they are seen by us. So we want to reduce the number of assigned unseen patients within the delivery system. So Medi-Cal managed care has been increasing in both enrollment, a number of responsibilities that the state used to have under a fee-for-service system have transitioned into Medi-Cal managed care. I'll talk a little bit about that. And certainly it has become an increasing component of the funding that we receive under Medi-Cal. So to give you a sense of the distribution, you can see that both at the statewide level and at the local level, only about 15% of all Medi-Cal beneficiaries are in fee-for-service. 85% are in managed care at the statewide level. And at the local level, you can see here that it's 84%, roughly. Um, the total number of Medi-Cal managed care enrollees we have, 81,000 between both Alameda Alliance and Anthem Blue Cross. You know, what I have in this sort of yellow-orange square is that over the past, you know, 12 years, the percentage of Medi-Cal managed care members as a, as a proportion of the overall state enrollment increased from a little over 50% to 85%, and it will continue to increase as a result of CalAIM. So there'll be very few people in fee-for-service. So the financing, we, we all know that the financing of healthcare is not 
um, very clear. And part of that really is because, you know, the state doesn't fully cover the cost of care. And so public hospital systems such as ourselves do what's called self-financing. I'm not going to go into self-financing today, but as we know, you know, it is used to supplement um, the base rates, either, you know, the base rates that we get from Medi-Cal directly on the fee-for-service side or from managed care, any rates that we might get. And those rates could be either fee-for-service or they could be capitation or it could be another alternative payment methodology. But whatever the model for Medi-Cal managed care, we are supplementing those funds through self-financing. So one of the things that has happened over the past uh, five years in particular is that there was a federal rule um, that created or limited, I should say, the ability of the state of California to direct payments to Medi-Cal managed care plans. Um, and that was called the, actually the Medicaid managed care rule. Um, and that rule essentially meant that um, the state of California had to create a number of what we call value-based programs or pay for performance programs. Um, those programs are only for public hospital systems. Um, you've probably have heard them um, before from the presentations that Kim has given as part of her finance reports, either our uh, quality improvement program or our an enhanced provider payment program. But all of those programs require of us a much more, a much closer relationship with our health plan partners beyond just the delivery of healthcare services to members assigned to us. We spend a significant amount of time now having to earn our dollars and um, work with a health plan to ensure that the data that is provided to document our provision of services is accurate and is timely submitted to the state so that we can draw down those additional dollars. So we have much more of our finances tied in with our Medi-Cal managed care plans that, has, uh, that is separate from any reimbursement that we might get, with them, get from them uh, for rates. So what does this money sort of look like? You know, you can see here, um, this is based on the previous fiscal year of 2021. Um, we have many more supplementals than this, but these are just the supplementals that go through the Medi-Cal managed care plans. And you can see um, we've got supplementals that are tied to just utilization, some that are tied to quality metrics, some that are tied to intergovernmental transfers, and then sort of graduate medical education. But in total, it was about $190 million in supplementals flowing through our Medi-Cal managed care plans. That's almost 20% of our budget, separate apart from rates.
So in addition, so we've got the supplementals that um, we receive uh, via Medi-Cal Managed Care. The other thing that's happening that is um, increasing our uh, relationships uh, and partnerships with the health plans has to do with the state's desire to really move towards value-based reimbursement and value-based care. You can see here, you know, at the lower left, you know, the focus on, you know, visits or, uh, you know, an inpatient stay uh, and a fee-for-service. And over time, the state has really started to look at delivery reform and that delivery reform moving from perhaps a focus on inpatient care to outpatient care, which was a lot of disrupt the delivery system reform incentive program to the most previous waiver, uh, which focused on prime, uh, focused on whole person care, focused on the global payment program, all of which are value-based pay for performance programs to where we are with the QIP and QIP is our quality incentive program. It's about $60 million. It was on the previous slide. And that uh, program is designed to ensure that we are providing preventative and primary care services to our patients and that we are appropriately managing our patients. And it is less about a fee-for-service model where we are focused on visit volume and more of a model where we're really focused on the quality of care and the value of the care. And that does mean that in order for us to manage the population, we have to actually see the population and make sure that our visits um, are accessible to this population. So when we have our funding tied to access to care, and which we certainly do, I think it's important to understand what our current um, uh, visits for our assigned population are. And this is looking solely at our Medi-Cal managed care population. So that would be those individuals with the Alliance, Alameda Alliance or Anthem Blue Cross. Um, you can see uh, on the right, um, this uh, pie chart essentially gives a sense of the percentage of assigned members who had had a visit in the last 24 months. Um, you may um, recall that this is actually on our True North metric dashboard that we are tracking. You can see here that 58% um, were unseen, 42% seen. Now we have had an increase in the percentage of unseen. And a lot of that is, um, related to uh, COVID and the pandemic. And let me just spend a little bit of time explaining why that is. You know, with the COVID pandemic, um, the federal government and states were really concerned about ensuring that individuals on Medi-Cal <laughs> did not get disenrolled. We wanted to make sure that people got tested. We wanted to make sure that people got their um, vaccinations. And so what the federal government did was it provided flexibility for all states to 
um, suspend doing what's called an annual redetermination. And that's this is what happens in Medicaid. You know, you apply and you get coverage for a year. And the expectation is uh, before that year is up, you are contacted to determine um, whether or not you're still eligible and you go through a somewhat truncated application process to ensure your continued eligibility. Well, that has been suspended since March of 2020. So as a result, we have had certainly increases in terms of new individuals coming into Medi-Cal. At the same time, we've had very few people being disenrolled because they haven't been redetermined. It's one of the reasons why there's been an over 2 million person increase in Medi-Cal enrollment since March of 2020. We are expecting that when the public health emergency ends, and it's expected to end in early 2023, either in January or February, that the state and all states will um, resume their Medi-Cal uh, disenrollments or renewal processes. And um, so that will result in some people obviously uh, leaving the program due to ineligibility. But um, this is one of the reasons why we have such a significant uh, percentage of unseen prior to the pandemic. Um, this percentage was about 39%. So you can see it's, it's a very significant increase. Um, now, one of the things that's really important um, about um, the assigned population, as I mentioned before, with our QIP program, that's about $60 million of our supplementals coming into the system, um, is that we um, are assessed uh, in that program, not based on who utilizes services, but we're uh, assessed based on everyone who's enrolled. So, you know, we need to make sure um, for our various uh, clinical measures that we're able to serve as many individuals who are enrolled to with us, which means that when we think of, about what capacity we have in our system, it's really important that we ensure that there is capacity in our system to see our Medi-Cal population. Because not only do we want to reduce the number of assigned unseen, but the more individuals that we see who are assigned means that we uh, are better able to meet the metrics tied to our various quality measures, which then makes it easier for us to attain and retain our pay for performance dollars attached to providing those visits, meeting those measures, meeting those quality metrics for this program. So we really have to focus our visit volume on our assigned population. Um, I will not go into CalAIM because we'll be here all night if I were to do that. And I know you don't want to be here all night, but I will say um, that CalAIM is further moving the state's Medi-Cal program into managed care. 
the expansion and the creation of a new benefit, enhanced care management, uh, the ability of health plans to offer community supports, such as housing, such as asthma remediation, such as home modifications, such as meals, medically tailored meals, into managed care where we as delivery systems and providers have to coordinate with the medical managed care plans to get those services, health-related um, sort of social needs to our uh, patient population. And so um, there's a broad uh, focus on delivery system, payment reform, and programmatic reform in Medi-Cal managed care. And it's increasing the roles of the health plans. So I'm just giving a snippet of some of the additional responsibilities that are going into managed care that will impact us and the shift in responsibility. So I spoke a moment ago about enhanced care management, which is a new benefit. And so if we are a provider, we get reimbursed for that service. We have a contract for that service, community supports, which I indicated a moment ago. And then there are incentive payments. Now, uh, there are a number of incentive payment programs under CalAIM, uh, but those incentive payments don't come directly from the state to providers. We have to go through the health plans to get those dollars. Uh, beyond adding additional responsibilities and services into Medi-Cal managed care, the state is also shifting responsibilities and services that it currently does to managed care. And the biggest one is long-term care. So currently, if you are in Medi-Cal managed care and you have an unfortunate uh, event and it's been determined you are admitted into a skilled nursing facility and it's determined that you are not short-term SNF, you are long-term SNF, which is defined as 60 days or more, you're disenrolled from Medi-Cal managed care and you become fee-for-service. And so much of our long-term care is paid on a fee-for-service schedule by the state. This will change effective January 1st, 2023. Effective January 1st, 2023, long-term care will sniff and acute rehab will be carved into Medi-Cal managed care. So all of the individuals who were fee-for-service will go into managed care. And then the dollars will come not from a fee-for-service, but through managed care. So that 15% fee-for-service that we saw earlier in one of the slides, the state anticipates after it makes all the changes under Medi-Cal managed care, less than 10% of individuals will be in fee-for-service and the majority of dollars. That's a significant, long-term care is a significant bucket of work that's transitioning from the state into managed care. Then the next thing that's happening is duals. Uh, duals. Um, duals are individuals who are both Medicare and Medi-Cal. Um, they will now be mandatorily enrolled in managed care. And that's also January 1st, 2023. So you can see there's a significant shift of, of enrollment, activities, oversight, you know, from the state and the fever service system into Medi-Cal managed care. 
So what's the uh, impact on the bottom line? Well, um, we do believe um, that in terms of base payments and supplemental payments, you know, that it's approximating, you know, our cost. It is still at this point difficult to determine um, uh, if this will continue with all of the changes that the state is proposing for Medi-Cal managed care as a result of CalAIM. But rest assured, we are monitoring this from a programmatic perspective and a financial uh, perspective. Uh, and because um, the base rates continue to be below our cost, uh, self-financing to get these supplemental payments will continue to be a reality within our managed care world. So this is my last slide to key takeaways. Um, I talked about the transition uh, into Medi-Cal managed care. It's a significant component, obviously, of you know, our uh, revenues and financial resources. Um, Value-based care uh, will continue to be a component and the more funds that are shifted into managed care, the more focus on quality measures, the more focus um, on um, outcome measures um, that we will see tied to uh, our reimbursement. And we will have an increase in the number of assigned patients and we need to increase the number of those that are seen within our delivery system. Um, the, I can't underscore or underemphasize the data piece. You know, in order for the state to do value-based care, it needs the data. In order for the state to get that data, it needs to get it from the health plans, which means ultimately they're getting it from us as the providers because the health plan is not a provider. So our ability to really ensure uh, that we are doing our appropriate clinical documentation, that we are doing our reconciliations with our health plans uh, to make sure that that data is delivered in a timely manner is really critical. And um, as I state in the last bullet, I think there's just gonna be continued realignment uh, of services from the state into Medi-Cal managed care um, for the foreseeable future. And certainly over the next uh, four years of the remaining five-year CalAIM um, uh, waiver. So um, that's sort of the overview. Um, hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully you haven't really fallen asleep on me. Not at all. I, I thank you. That was okay. very informative and very clear. Okay, good. Good. Um, I try to be good. I'm a Libra. We try to do that. Uh, any questions for uh, Tangerine? Um, I also agree with you, Alan. I thought it was really informative, well organized, comprehensive, and uh, an important primer for all of us. Some probably knew a lot of it, others like me did not know a lot of it, but uh, thank you so much for including that in today's meeting. You're welcome. So I have a couple of questions. Yeah. One is why is the county going from two ma Medi-Cal managed care plans to one? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, a couple of reasons. One, I think they were given the opportunity. Uh, the state of California 
for the first time in about 25 years, um, issued a request for proposals on the commercial side, which are the commercial plans, Anthem, uh, HealthNet. When the state um, indicated they were doing that, the local health plans, um, of which Alameda Alliance is one, um, really said to the state, well, wait a minute, you know, if you're uh, putting out an RFP that might change the local initiatives, let offer us as counties an opportunity to, to really rethink what Medi-Cal managed model we want. And so Alameda decided to move forward. And I think it's because number one, there has been a history of what are called county organized health systems. There are five in California and county organized health systems have done very well. And those are one plan counties, right? Those are one plan counties. So San Mateo is one, for example. Uh, Cal Optima um, is one. Um, you have partnership, uh, although partnership is one plan, but it covers almost all the rural counties in California. And there's something to be said uh, for providers not having to figure out how to manage the referral processes for two health plans. There's some inherent efficiencies that are created when there's only one health plan that providers have to work with. So do we- now, on the other hand, that does mean that all of, as a provider, all of your eggs are in one basket. Do we have to negotiate? Do we negotiate rates with the alliance? Yes, we do. And so, I mean, I'm sure we're that we're on the hospital side, their biggest provider. And Wait, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, so I'm just thinking. You know, are we losing something by not having two plans competing against each other in the county? Yeah, you know, um, I think it depends upon whom you ask. You know, if you if uh, I was a community uh, advocate, I might say yes because it's it's good to have competition amongst health plans. Uh, but then, uh, if I was a beneficiary, I might say, well, you know if I have really the choice I need is not of the health plan, it's really at the provider level. And do I have sufficient provider choice? So I think it depends upon where you think individuals may make their choices. So it the is true, true that leverage, you lose leverage when there is you know, just one plan. But um, I will say, because um, I, I work on the negotiations of the contracts for our health plan partners, both Anthem and the Alliance, you know, we've been able to work with, you know, both of those health plans to sort of really um, document our costs so that they, you know, we get rates that are appropriate. You know, we are the, you know, level one trauma center. Um, we are um, about 20% of the alliances network and about 20% perhaps of Anthem's network because their networks are obviously more than just us. They have community clinics, they have private providers, they have all the other hospitals um, in the network. But you know, we certainly will be making sure that we're not disadvantaged financially as a result of the movement from uh, two plans to a one plan model. And was Blue Cross uh, 
happy to leave the market or, or uh, reluctant to leave the market? Or do we not know? We do not know. They never made a public statement uh, with respect to, uh, to the county's um, decision. I mean, I think there may have been uh, one letter that they, they wrote. Um, I will say that um, Anthem is in about 20 plus counties in California. They're in uh, San Francisco, right? Yeah, they're in San Francisco. Um, they're also in Contra Costa, but Contra Costa is also going to a single plan. But Contra Costa has its own health plan. And the, the Contra Costa health plan was uh, is owned by and operated by the county. And Contra Costa never contracted with Anthem. So Contra Costa is moving to a single plan. Alameda County is moving to a single plan. And the other county in the California that's moving from a two plan to a single plan is Imperial County. And is the Alliance in Alameda County independent of the county? Yes. So the um, state statute requires that the counties were responsible for creating the local, what were called local initiatives, um, but they are separate and uh, distinct from the county. Although similar to the uh, Alameda Health System Board of Trustees, the county does appoint the members of the Board of Governors for the Alliance. But you said that in Contra Costa County, the Contra Costa Health Plan, which is the Medi-Cal Managed Care Plan, I think, yes. is, in the, is part of the county. Yes, that's correct. But that is because uh, Contra Costa uh, created its own health plan in the 1980s like I want to say early 1980s and it did it as a way of providing health benefits to its own county employees. So when the Medi-Cal Managed Care Strategic um, Initiative was released back in the, the early 90s, instead of creating a local initiative, it just decided to use its own. Oh, I see. So that's, that's the history there. Okay. And I have one more question. God, I know too much. I'm too old. You talked about self-financing of yes. Medi-Cal. Mm -hmm. Does that mean basically that, 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 they re, that we take a loss uh, on, the, uh, on the, um, the, the rate, the reimbursement rate we get versus our, our cost we take a loss on that and we have to make it up in supplementals. Is that what you mean by self-financing? Yeah, essentially. I mean, because the state of California, for example, um, doesn't um, fund inpatient um, Medi-Cal fee-for-service inpatient. It does not fund that. You know, public hospitals have to fund that themselves. And so it's funded by local dollars and federal dollars where we put up you know, the cost and we, we draw it down via the state. And so because the base rates are inadequate, in order to get to 
our costs, public hospital systems um, have had the ability to do supplementals. Okay. And we are not the only state that has this concept of base rates and supplementals. I, I, I can't even think of a state that probably doesn't do it for its public safety net systems. Thank you. Other questions for, for Ms. Brigham or, or comments on the report? All right, well, thank you very much. Really appreciate the report. We have one more agenda item, uh, which is item D, uh, an amendment to extend the behavioral health services with Traditions Behavioral Health, which is basically a, a psychiatry um, uh, registry, I guess you could say, a registry for psychiatrists. Uh, would anybody like to make any questions or, or offer a motion that we approve this item? I have one question. Um, just for clarification, on the... Uh, the coverage for, what was it, the Fairmont and the outpatient clinics, uh, it looks like it's quite a lot of hours, 86 hours per week, 52 hours, 52 weeks per year for Highland and Fairmont, and uh, 76 hours per week, 52 weeks per year on the AHS outpatient clinics. My question is, are these uh, medical staff only provided, the, the staff that cover these sites only provided by this contract, or is this a mix of medical staff? Trustee Hussain, I can, I can start with that. And sorry, my, I, I, I got a, uh, the, my sound cut out there for a minute there. But I, I think, let me just back up and, and start for a minute, some of the importance of this contract amendment with Traditions Behavioral Health. This is a, uh, we've had a longstanding partnership with Traditions Behavioral Health um, to staff psychiatry services at, at John George. However, interestingly, with this amendment, it actually represents the start of a sea change um, for what we're doing at, at John George. And with that, we're actually moving to full alignment in physician employment structures at John George. So we will be having a fully employed model um, at John George with our UAPD physicians likely by the end of the next two years. Um, and so we will likely be drawing, you know, we expect to be drawing down on, on our staffing by our, this medical group and have a transition towards our employed physician physicians. Now in this contract amendment, we've already started making some of that transition with our psychiatry services. And that transition is already underway with our staffing of Alameda Hospital, San Leandro Hospital, and Fairmont. Those are already being covered by our internal employed physicians. And um, indeed for our outpatient clinics, the only change here is that um, uh, compared to what was con contemplated in the prior amendment, compared to this one, it actually is just right sizing the, uh, the hours that we're actually spending on those outpatient services with traditions behavioral, behavioral health. I'll, I'll turn it over to any of my colleagues here, either Mark, Dr. Siddhartha, or Patty, if there's anything else to add um, to, Dr., to Trustee Esteen's question. I have nothing to add. Thank you, Felicia. Mm -hmm. I would just comment that I think if you're successful in going to a 100% employee model, hats off to you because it's hard to mm -hmm. hire psychiatrists to do inpatient, inpatient 
treatment. Yes. Yeah. Um, I agree, Trustee Fox, and we're actually real lucky to have a partner like Traditions Behavioral Health that, you know, we were very clear with them in terms of what we wanted to do strategically. And they said, you know, okay, you know, we'll hang with you and um, support you through this process. Um, and, you know, I feel confident if we don't get there in two years, we still will mm -hmm. be able to work with them. Okay. Uh, any follow-up questions, Trustee Esteen? Yeah, I'm still curious about how this looks in real life. Like, are these the currently are only traditions, doctors staffing those clinics? The the, the outpatient clinics, uh, Trustee Esteen? The clinics, uh, outpatient as well as Fairmont and uh, Highland. So currently, and I might have to turn to Dr. Siddhartha yeah. for, to make sure I get this right, but um, in current state in our FQHC clinics um, that they are currently staffed by TBH physicians, Fairmont is being um, covered by our AHS employed physicians right now. Uh, Dr. Siddhartha, did I get that right? So uh, currently the, in the wellness clinics is covered by one TBH physician. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any AH presentation, AHS representation here. Mm -hmm. So this, this amendment continues that presence with TBH uh, in the wellness clinics. So there is no reduction there. Uh, the, the 36 hours reduction that we see there is, uh, it hasn't been utilized in years at this point of time. So that's just right-sizing it there. Uh, the, there is still capacity for, you know, for, you know so our doctor who does cover uh, the clinics, uh, she does uh, still have uh, quite a lot of capacity uh, in her schedule. Uh, the Fairmont, uh, we have when we say Fairmont, there is a, uh, the uh, TBH uh, mm -hmm. uh, is in the wellness uh, in the IOP. Mm -hmm. So again, the current staffing that is uh, there in IOP is not being reduced. So this amendment does not decrease any services at those sites. But at this point of time, the doctors who are working in the IOP are TBH. So that and the so and the total hour number of hours they are delivering now is not being decreased. And the same on the PHP side, it's all the yeah. So the PHP, yeah, it's the same program. Yes. Dr. Siddhartha, the the for Fairmont and the skilled nursing facility. That is being covered yeah. by an AHS physician, is that correct? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So yeah, the firm, yes. Any um, other questions? Yeah, also that includes the, so the medical director is a contractor as well. I think that was what actually stood out to me first is that uh, medical director yeah, I, is a contractor and not uh, staff. Correct, Trustee Esteen. The, uh, the, the medical director for the intensive outpatient program, PHP, uh, is a TBH, uh, yes, it's a TBH employee. So currently we have, uh, we have, uh, you know, we haven't, uh, we are basically maintaining services mm -hmm. that are there. We are just, uh, just right-sizing the contract in that regard. So that we have, we are focused currently is on the, you know, the shortages and the problems have been on the inpatient side with staffing. So, you know, we, uh, we are working on that, and uh, I think things are stable on the inpatient, sorry, mm -hmm. sorry, the IOP, the wellness clinic, and also the hospital console, console site. 
Okay. Uh, any other any other questions? Alan, if I may, it's it's James. Um, I would just offer that um, Mark alluded to it, and I just want to say it. Uh, traditions has really been a an integral and terribly important bridge for us because our intent and our desire is always to utilize the employed um, physicians, the physicians who are part of AHS, but without TBH helping to make sure that we're always covered, we would be telling a very different story here. So kudos to Dr. Siddhartha, um, but my gratitude to the team of TBH to making sure that we always have providers to provide adequate care. Okay, thank you for that comment. And again, it's difficult to get many psychiatrists to sign on as hospital employees. Uh, could I hear a motion to approve? Uh, I move approval of the amendment to extend behavioral health services agreement with Traditions Behavioral Health. I'll second it. Oh man, we have a roll call please, Madam Clerk. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. And Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Uh, anything else uh, anybody wants to offer for this meeting? Um, well, thank you for your attendance. I think we had some outstanding reports during this meeting. Uh, it was certainly packed with, uh, with good information. So uh, you're on vacation next month and we'll see you in early January and we're adjourned. Good night. Like a Swiss watch, Chair Fox, like a Swiss watch. <laughs> <laughs>